Welcome to the Rent to Retirement Podcast, your resource for passive real estate investing and retirement strategies. If you're new to real estate or planning your financial future, you're in the right place. Join us at renttoretirement.com to find your path to financial freedom and an easy, carefree retirement. Enjoy the show. Hey, Rent to Retires, it's Adam Schrader here with another episode of the podcast. And I am once again joined by the CEO and founder of Rent to Retirement, Zach Lamaster. How are you doing today, Zach? Doing great. We got an early morning start talking about economics, <laughs> which always gets me fired up Monday morning. Uh, Dave's across <laughs> no the better world way. here. Yeah, no so better we, way. We got a great show. Yeah, and so to help us uh, with the economic part, we are bringing in uh, Dave Meyer. He is with Bigger Pockets. He's the vice president of data and analytics, and host of their newest podcast on the market. Dave, uh, welcome. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of how you got started, and how you joined in with that little teeny tiny organization of Bigger Pockets? <laughs> sure. So first of all, thank you for for the early morning. I appreciate it. I, I live in Europe, so I appreciate you both waking up early to accommodate my schedule. I got started investing in real estate back in 2010 after moving to Colorado. And I did so because I was interested in financial independence even before I had heard that term. I sort of saw my family struggle financially a lot growing up. And you know, my parents worked hard and still had a lot of issues um, financially. And I felt very motivated, especially graduating into the Great Recession, uh, as I did to find alternative sources from inc for, of income other than my full-time job. I fell into real estate just because a friend was doing it and I was jealous of all the money he was making. And so <laughs> I decided to try it myself. And I did that for four or five years and ultimately decided that I wanted to marry my passion, which was real estate investing and my full-time job, which was uh, at the time working in technology. Uh, I have a master's degree in data analytics. And so I was doing that. And so honestly, I just Googled real estate technology and was looking through all these different jobs and found this thing called Bigger Pockets. And I was on the website. I was like, this is kind of cool. It's kind of a rinky dink thing, but I don't know. And I, I don't know how big it is. And I started looking into it and I just saw books and podcasts and so much things. And so I decided to apply and uh, thankfully, well, it, it wasn't immediate. I waited about nine months actually until there was a job that was appropriate for me. Then finally applied and got the job. And I've had a few roles now at Bigger Pockets. I started in growth and marketing. And now I focus almost entirely on data and analytics, both internally, where you know I do the normal business intelligence stuff that's required for a software company. And uh, as you said, host a economics and data centric podcast called On the Market, which talks all about the data, news, trends, economics that impact real estate investors. That's outstanding, Dave. Thanks for that background. And, and obviously, you're the guy to talk about economics. Um, <laughs> you know, this is this is something that you're, uh, I mean, do you also have a education background in that? Or is this something that you, okay, kind of developed? No. Yeah, it's something I, I'm really, I consider myself a, really just a data analyst. I'm not an economist, but I'm very interested in investing and like taking an analytical approach to that. And if you do like the numbers and data and want to be an investor, it sort of naturally leads to economics and macroeconomics. And so for the last several years, I've been 
just reading a lot of books and uh, just so everyone understands, I am not a formally trained economist, but do spend a lot of time thinking about this and doing my own original data analysis and research into the economy. Excellent. But you are a real estate investor and you're, you're living it day in, day out like we all are um, and watching the trends. And, uh, you know, I think that's very important. So l- let's talk about some of the, the data and uh, what we're seeing today. It's kind of this unique time where um, there's a lot of question marks out there. There's a lot of turmoil. We have inflation. I think, what did we see, Adam, last time, uh, last week we saw it was, it was over eight and a half or something. Yeah, they, they admit to eight and a half right now. Right. And that's not even including food and um, energy. So, I mean, true, you know, true inflation, who knows? Anyways, it's 40 year plus high inflation. We have interest rates that are going up, um, you know, probably back to what, what we would consider the norm. However, it feels this, this pressure that uh, interest rates are getting, you know, a little bit unreasonable from what we've seen over the past couple of years. But I think what a lot of people do, Dave, and maybe you can agree with me or expand on this is that sometimes we, we tend to be hyper-focused on what's happening right now and not take a global viewpoint of where we've been and to likely see where we're headed. And just, I, I think so many people live in the now. Um, and this is why we really, we really wanted to bring you on is to kind of hear about where, where are we coming from? What's normal? How is this, how should we be thinking about investing right now? Um, and what does the future potentially look like? So I know I'm throwing a lot of topics out at you, but maybe <laughs> we can talk about, you know, those, those things, inflation, interest rates, you know, how does that compare to previous history? And what's what's your mindset right now? Great questions. I'll, I'll start by just saying that in a historical context, we over the last several years have been in what is a very abnormal period. And so when people see a reversal in recent trends and in interest rates or inventory and start to panic and think that that's a sign of a problem in the economy or the housing market, I think it's actually quite healthy what's happening because what's been happening over the last few years is very abnormal. Um, And we are probably just entering a period where interest rates, as you said, are returning to a much more normal level. We haven't seen inventory start to approach a much more normal level, but that, in my opinion, is likely what's going to happen. To me, I think the the real story about the housing market is really everything that has happened since the Great Recession has really spurred and growth in the housing market. Back in 2007, we saw that the Fed adopted a very low interest rate, easy money position. And this has actually been happening since about the early 1980s. We've been on this long decline in interest rates. Famously, back in the 80s, interest rates were 15%. They were 18% to fight inflation. That was a very different economic time. There's a lot that we won't get into of why it was that high, but it's been going down very consistently ever since then. What happened in the um, in back in 2008 is that interest rates really never went back up to a normal level. Like we saw them go down to start uh, to, to spur the economy after the Great Recession. Uh, but even in 2019, pre-pandemic, mortgage rates were still generally below 5% or right about 5%. Before the Great Recession, interest rates were never below 5%. Never. It just never happened. And so when you see interest rates going back up, to me, that is a healthy, good sign that we are returning to some sense of normalcy. Because even as an investor who owns a lot of property, 
Sure, it's great to see the appreciation that we've seen over the last few years. It adds a lot of equity to your portfolio, to your net worth. But it, I don't think personally it is good for investors, for homeowners, for American society, for for interest rates or property values to uh, for property values to go up at this rate. And so I actually think what's happening is relatively good, even if it is causing this short-term uncertainty. And you asked about long-term, and we can get into all this details. To me, even though interest rates are going up, causing short-term uncertainty, and that makes it daunting to invest in real estate, especially if you're new, I totally understand that. The prospects of growth for the housing market over the next like 10 years are extremely strong for a bunch of reasons we can get into. But so to me, my mindset is to take a long-term view. I, I try and look past uncertainty and just look at the things I do know, which is that there's a, a shortage of housing units in the United States. People still want to buy houses, despite what people say about millennials and Gen Z. <laughs> That's just not true. They want houses. Um, and so I think there's still going to be demand for housing. And I think that's a good reason to invest. And people need rental units. And as an investor, you can provide that product to the marketplace. And I still think that's a, a good strategy if you're trying to build wealth. That's excellent. So if I could summarize kind of what you're saying just in a few bullet points, Generally speaking, you would say that we're, we're probably returning back to some normalization and where we're seeing, you know, in the market with interest rates, uh, you still have a strong outlook for real estate in general. You're still personally investing and you are still encouraging people to still actively participate in some type of investing, especially real estate right now. This is not something where you're concerned and putting a pause on, on your investing, correct? No, I'm not. I do think that I'll be honest, I do think there is a chance that we see the housing market go flat or even slightly negative in the next year or two. But I don't know. No one knows is, is the real answer. And I personally think that we're like looking at a plus minus 10% over the next two or three years could go slightly down for a little while, could keep going up for the next couple of years. But I think we're, we're going to see a lot of moderation. I personally have not ever thought there was going to be a crash um, over the last few years. I still don't think there's going to be a crash. I've looked at a lot of data and it just does not suggest that a rapid or significant decline in housing prices is very likely over the next couple of years. Of course, it could happen. You know, it's probably a bigger risk now than it's been over the last 10 or 15 years. But frankly, I am not really worried about that because timing the market is extremely difficult. My personal approach to real estate investing is one of dollar cost averaging. I just continue to buy real estate relatively independent of market conditions, even though it's my job to look at market conditions. Um, because if you look at the trend over the last, since the history of time, real estate prices go up and they at least track inflation, which right now is super important. And often in recent years, they've surpassed the rate of inflation and have actually had um, appreciation. And so um, will that happen over the next year, two years? I'm not 100% certain. It's a very murky economic picture. Is that going to happen over 10 years? Yes. And it's going to be a good investment. And so I try not to think too much about the short term and really just think about where I want to be in 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. So someone, so someone, sorry, one more Adam here <laughs> for Dave. So someone who studies analytics and does this for a living um, for specifically around the real estate market. You're telling us you don't pay too much attention to where the market's at at one point in time. You consistently invest in real estate because really we all know that this is a long game. What we're talking about today really is, is price points. 
right? I mean, we're not even where people build real wealth in real estate and and uh, are able to obtain financial independence over time is through all the other ancillary benefits in addition to appreciation, right? We're using leverage. We're um, scaling our portfolio with that, letting the tenant pay the loan down for us. That's a return on investment, your cash flow. Obviously, the tax benefits are, are my favorite thing to talk on. And so all those other things combined are really reasons to, regardless of where the market's at, still invest in real estate and still stay on that path. No one that's real successful in real estate that we've talked to has said, oh, I just timed the market perfectly. I mean, maybe at one point in time. However, everyone says that is successful investing in real estate. I've stayed consistent and continually buy year after year. Yeah, I completely agree. And if you if you are an investor in real estate, stock market, crypto, whatever, like you have to expect the market to flatten, go down a little bit at some points. Like I don't know when that's going to be, but when it happens, yeah, it's going to suck a little bit, but it's like a paper loss. You know, it's just you're not actually losing any money out of your pocket as long as you don't sell. So it's like it sucks. It's you know, you don't want to see your net worth on paper go down, but in reality, that's just going to happen. And I think we've gotten used to this bull market that has gone on for 15 years, both in the stock market and real estate. And like, it has to come to an end. Is it this year? Is it five years from now? I don't know. It has to come to an end, but I'm not going to obsess about it because over the long term, I do think it's a good idea. Now, why I look at real analytics so much is like, strategies should change based on market conditions, where you invest should change based on market conditions. So I'm constantly thinking about, you know, how I'm allocating my capital within real estate, um, you know, what kind of strategies I'm employing um, right now based on market conditions. But to me, as an asset class, I'm continuing to invest in real estate for sure. Yeah. So one of the, you keep mentioning that you look at the data, where are you getting most of your data because i mean this is one thing you know especially as people get started and they want to really dive into a market or where they're investing i mean you know you can go into the bureau of labor statistics if you want but where do you look whenever you get there you can go into the census website and look around there but what do you look at whenever you're there so what are the big places that you go and what do you look at whenever you're analyzing what to do next in your real estate journey Good question. And it depends on what exactly I'm trying to look at. If I'm looking for my own personal investing, there are two websites I really like that are free that people can use. One is called Thread. Um, it's the Federal Reserve of St. Louis. It's their economic research website. I forget exactly what it stands for. Yeah. It's entirely free. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Um, it's super it aggregates a ton of government and private party data. So they have like BLS, like you said. Uh, data, but they also get data from NAR, the National Association of Realtors, uh, local governments. And so if you, you know, I primarily invest in Colorado. So if you wanted to check out the unemployment rate, population growth, the number of construction permits in Colorado, you can find that all there. Um, and it's updated relatively easy. It's super easy to use. It's a, it's a website I use multiple times a week. Um, the other one I really like right now is Redfin. Honestly, they have great data. If you go to redfin.com, I think it's slash data center or something like that, just Google it. Um, they have great information about the strength of the housing market. And something I look at a lot these days is just the fundamentals of the housing market, which is all about supply and demand. And they have a lot of really good information about days on market, inventory, new listings, all of that data, which tells you a lot about what's going on in an indiv individual market. 
And so I, I look at that data a lot. There's also quite a lot of data on bigger pockets um, itself. We have rent estimating tools. Um, we just launched some new rent data that you can get for free if you sign up uh, for a free account. So you can definitely find that on bigger pockets as well. Yeah. So one of the things about the Fred website is, good lord, you can make a chart for anything. Um, so you can, can you maybe give people three or four different charts? I know you mentioned some of them, but you know if you're going to go there and just do a scan of you know Denver or you know any of the markets that we're in as well, what are four quick and easy charts they can look up on there? Because I mean, you can literally for those of you who haven't been on the website, they have like a search box and it'll give you pretty much anything on earth you want to look at when it comes to economic data. So what are some like just quick charts they can make that'll help them with their their way. That's a great point. They have so much data. It is very, it can be very overwhelming. It depends on what you're looking for, but if you're trying to say screen a market in which to invest, I would recommend looking at the unemployment rate. And if you want to, you can dig in further and look at what types of jobs are available in that market. For me, I think it's really important to just have diversity of employment and you can find that on the Fred website as well. I don't like any particular market that's super dependent on one industry. For example, a lot of people invest in Las Vegas and love it. Not for me. It's very uh, tourism dependent and, and hospitality dependent. I like seeing diversified economies. Um, so that's something you can look at in the, the FRED website. Um, construction permits. Uh, and if you can compare that to population growth, I think is a really, that's a little bit more advanced, but it's uh, something that's really helpful to see, you know, our they building more than people are actually moving to that area because that could have a negative impact on the supply and demand dynamic or, um, you know, it may be they're underbuilding compared to how many people are moving there. Um, those are really like the two high level things I think are the most important are population growth. You know, that's a big indicator of long term demand and uh, just economic growth in general. The economies are growing. People are going to move there. Housing prices are likely to go up. Um, in those types of economies. I mean, that's really what it boils down to is, is supply and demand. Uh, I heard you talk on another show previously about, uh, I pose a question, and I think this is a common um, a common misconception or at least a common theme that people just naturally assume out there as interest rates go up, that prices must come down. Obviously, you know, that's one metric we're looking at. Adam and I did another show where we talk, looked at uh, some analytics over the past 30 years where interest rates rose and looked at what happened to housing prices the years following that. And in most cases, they either stabilized or even increased higher than the year preceding when there was lower interest rates. But I mean, this is just one thing to factor in, uh, Dave. So, I mean, can we talk a little bit about just what we're seeing right now in terms of supply and demand? I think we have, you know, national housing shortages in a lot of locations, um, you know, and what's, what's driving the demand? Cause it seems like we still have all things considered, quite a bit of demand, which could give us, you know, potentially strong outlook on where the housing market is, is headed over the next few years. Yeah, we, we've seen a, a very large increase in demand over the last couple of years. And uh, I think there's a common perception that that is driven entirely by investor activity and investor activity has increased pre pandemic, it was about 16% of all home purchases. Now it's about 19% of home purchases. So that is an increase. We're also seeing an increase in second home demand with people working from home. It's about up 80% over pre-pandemic levels. So we're, those are two sources of demand that have are pushing up the economy or, or prices and demand in the housing market. 
But the housing market is still almost entirely dependent on home buyers. It's about 75% of all homes are by people who just are looking for a place to live. And the reason demand has increased among that group, in my mind, is twofold. The first is the very difficult to quantify impact of COVID, which is that people, you know, now value space and um, their preferences for shelter have changed. And I think that is not going back, um, in my opinion. But I think the fundamental thing here is just demographics. Like it's it's not sexy and it's kind of boring, but millennials are the largest generation in the United States and they're reaching their peak home buying age. And so there is this narrative that millennials don't own homes because they don't want to. That's not <laughs> true. If you look at surveys, millennials want to own homes at the same rate as every other generation. But speaking as a millennial, we graduated many of us graduated college right around the time of the Great Recession. Then we had the COVID pandemic. That's two black swan economic crises that have impacted uh, the uh, mo many millennials' ability to purchase homes. And so it's not that there is no interest among millennials to, to buy a home. It's that they had a really hard time doing it. And during the pandemic, they are reaching their peak family formation years at a time where interest rates were dropped to historic lows. And that's an opportunity. And I think many, many millennials saw this as their opportunity to get into the housing market and pounced on it. And that has led to extremely, extremely strong demand over the next couple of years. And if you just look at the de like age demographics, that is likely to continue for another two or three years. Yeah, I mean, you've got millennials, like you were saying, you know, you came in right at the Great Recession. So that was one piece of PTSD. And then you had a student loan payment that was, you know, at least the cost of a mortgage <laughs> that at this point in time, you know, some millennials, they still haven't finished paying it off if they took the 20, 25 year payoff route. And then you have COVID, like you were saying. I mean, it's just a, a horrible storm <laughs> of it. I mean, you can, you can want as much as you want, but it's just... Uh, not always going to be there. I wanted to touch on one thing you mentioned in a recent podcast that I think not enough people are taking into consideration. And that was y'all were talking about inflation and you mentioned, I'm 99% sure it was you, you mentioned that uh, sometimes inflation expectations create the inflation. And I think in this case that it is happening to some extent, because if you look at some of the commodity prices, not all of them, but some of them have been decently stable for a little while or in case of like lumber it's plummeted but people still talk about how oh the cost of lumber is going up and up and up and it's like well yeah it's more expensive than it was three years ago but it's way cheaper than it was six months ago but i do think the inflation expectations have led to continue that so can you touch on that that thought process you were going through a little bit yeah absolutely the, with inflation you know, it's defined as too much money chasing too few goods. And COVID has created this perfect storm where we have way more money than we used to and way fewer goods. So both variables there have moved in a direction that would support high inflation. It's like a perfect storm for inflation. That said, you know, I do think that the supply chain part of things will start to come get working out. But I think what the Fed is so worried about and what a lot of people are worried about is 
inflation becomes entrenched in people's mind. It becomes entrenched in their decision making. And that can lead to more inflation. And it's hard to quantify this, but a lot of economists have studied this and put out papers and data about this. But the expectation of inflation does positively correlate with inflation. And that is because when people, for example, are going for a job, they demand higher wages as they should during an inflationary environment. But then a job, you know, a the uh, employer is thinking, oh, man, we're gonna have to pay with all this inflation next year, we're gonna have to raise salaries really high. So now we're gonna price our products more to anticipate the inflation that's coming next year. Then that impacts the consumer and they're like, oh my God, these companies are raising prices. So now when I have a new job, I better ask for an even higher price. And it creates this cycle of inflation that is really detrimental to the, the, the integrity of our currency, uh, which is super important to the economy and can really spiral out of control, which is why we're seeing the Fed take such a aggressive stand against inflation now, uh, and why interest rates have been going up so quickly. Yeah, that's a lot of really good information, Dave. I, I love what you talked about with uh, just going back to the Great Recession in 2008. So many people want to just it's almost like they're nervous and, and probably to Adam's point have PTSD if they you know live through that or were hurt by that financially, because it's almost like sometimes we see this mindset where that's, that's what people assume is, is we're waiting for is, is something like that just because it was so impactful as you know, that's what's what the next crash is going to be like. We all know that that was a very unique type of scenario that we're likely never to experience again uh, and, and not a typical type of market correction. So um, I guess I'd like to hear just a little bit more about your your opinion on on that. And then a follow-up question completely off topic would be, you're in Europe, where you're buying in the US. Tell us about that. What are you buying? Where are you buying and why? Sure. Um, to your first question about uh, the 2007 recession, I've done some research into this because people continuously ask me, and seem to assume that if prices go down, it's going to be similar to what happened in 2007. And just to put some numbers behind what happened, housing prices in 2007 dropped nearly about 30% at their at their worst point. And it took about four years for um, the market to start growing. And in many housing markets, it took eight, seven, eight, nine years for prices to recover. Which is the worst we've ever seen, right? By far the worst worst that we've ever seen as far back as I have seen data. If something happened more pre-Civil War, I'm not really sure about that. But (laughs) as far back as we have data- Different housing market then. Yeah, exactly. So (laughs) that's what I've seen. Uh, And just for historical context, I looked at a few things since 1971 because- just if you're not familiar, 1971, monetary policy in the United States changed very significantly. So looking at things prior to that, not exactly comparing apples to apples. But if you look at what happened in the housing market since 1971, the times where the housing market has gone down, on average, the peak of from peak to trough, the most it's gone down is about 8%. And it usually lasts, uh, you know, maybe four to six quarters a year, maybe two years. So that is, I think, in my mind, a more normal correction, somewhere between five and 8% from peak to trough in, in value decline, and then lasts somewhere between a year and maybe three years between before we reach new highs again. And 
if you talk about that type of correction, I think that's normal. Um, I think that will happen several more times in my investing career and it is to be expected. And um, that's okay. So I, I think what happened in 2007, I don't know if we have time to really get into that, was very unique. Uh, what happened was very largely based on very loose credit and, and mortgage and lending practices that no longer exist. People right now are in some of the best position they've ever been in to, to service their debt. And so we're seeing very different market fundamentals, which of course does not mean it's not possible. It just means it's less likely. And if there is a crash of that magnitude, is not going to be because of subprime lending or, or very loose credit. That's just not what would drive it. Of course, we don't necessarily know what would drive it until after it happens. But the things we know about that drove the last one are not really present in today's economy. Yeah. One of the things that uh, you mentioned earlier was the construction starts. And obviously, we've seen since the Great Recession, you know, the massive gap, you know, of homes being built to household formations. I mean, it's anywhere in the five to seven million range, depending on what numbers you're looking at. And then obviously the start of COVID, I mean, our annualized starts dropped to something like 800,000, 900,000 900, units for a couple of months. And now it's gone back up a little bit. What rate of home building do you think we really need to be seeing to kind of create the inventory levels that will make the market better? I mean, I know back in the Great Recession, just before it, I think we were a little over 2 million and people were saying, well, that's too much. Well, we're building like it's the 1970s right now. Um, so what number are you kind of hoping to see if we're looking to fill the inventory gap that we have? This is not an area of my expertise. So I'll just caveat this <laughs> and say, I don't like giving out like a, a whole number because I think particularly when it comes to construction, it is very local. Like you will see areas that are, are, overbuilding right now. And there are areas that are underbuilding right now. And so I'm pretty hesitant to give like a, a nationalized number for what mm -hmm. we should expect. But I do think right now we're seeing maybe too much um, if we continue this for five years, you know, is like, is it too much if it's for another year? No, I don't think so. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it's, it's extremely localized, which is why I recommend people look at that data on uh, Fred or elsewhere, because it really matters. Like, if there's a ton of building in an area that's losing population, it, maybe any construction is too much, you know, like, or <laughs> if, if, if you're in the fastest growing city in the United States and permits take years to get like some places in the, in the Northwest, maybe you need a lot more construction. It really is localized. Adam's asking you to write uh, you know, economic policy for the U S government <laughs> here. So we lost the scope. So, so then where, where are they underbuilding drastically that you've seen then? How about that? Um, I, I can't say off the top of my head, but there's actually a really cool website NAR puts out where they compare building starts to population growth and job growth. Um, you can Google that, but I think there's places, um, historically in the Southeast that, that have been a lot, but construction is really picking up there. So I'm not sure how long that will last. And then, um, there are like pockets in the Midwest as well that are, are seeing that. That's a lot of what we do is, is Midwest and of course, Southeast. I mean, Southeast and, and we've seen that trend too, Dave, I'm sure you can attest over just, I mean, in COVID, I think expedited this, but just a lot of people moving to Sunbelt and maybe a little bit more tax and politically um, conservative type of areas during COVID. I mean, we, Florida, Texas, we're 
heavily invested in those both those markets and it just seems like construction just can't keep up um at least for right now obviously supply supply chain and other issues you know um are having an impact on that one thing that you always put out i believe on an annual or semi-annual basis is just kind of a like state of the market or market trends i mean um let's talk about where are the hot places to invest in 2022 what are you seeing in terms of like some of these markets? I, I think you do like the top 10 or 20, maybe just if you can enlighten us on that, please. Yeah, it it's all depends on your strategy. And if you're looking for cash flow or appreciation, historically, there has been a trade-off between markets that appreciate a lot and markets that have a lot of cash flow. There certainly are hybrid markets um, that tend to be in the middle for both. Like there's very rarely a great cash flow market that also has great appreciation. That just doesn't really exist in a historical context. The last two years we've seen above average and abnormal appreciation. So that trend has not really continued over the last two years, but I do expect with rising interest rates that we will return to a market uh, dynamics that are much more consistent with how it worked in the past. So, Appreciation markets, I think, are always driven by economic growth. You look at places like Austin, Texas are very obvious, Denver, Seattle, um, some of the fastest growing economic uh, epicenters of the country right um, there are, are really good. I think there are a lot of places in Florida, like Tampa um, is one I've, I've been a fan of just on paper. I don't invest there, just to be clear. Um, but uh, I think on paper, it is a really good market for appreciation. Miami as well. You see a lot of uh, the finance world from New York moving there. So a lot of wealth is moving to Miami and it's already very wealthy. Um, so I think those are, are strong appreciation areas if that's what you're looking for. But pretty hard to find cash flow in any of those places, to be perfectly <laughs> candid, unless you're finding off-market deals or doing um, value-add, you know, finding places that need significant upgrades and doing that. Cash flow, to me, the best area is the Midwest. You know, if you look at um, a lot of the markets in the Midwest, uh, you know, you can name a lot of them, Madison, Milwaukee, Chicago, Indianapolis, uh, Detroit, uh, Lansing, yeah, Kansas, yeah, like all these places in the middle um, offer the best cash flow. Um, there are pockets outside of that. Um, the Southeast still offers cash flow in many places, but um, Northeast, West Coast, very difficult to find cash flow, um, traditionally speaking. I love that. Um, let's just get back a little bit to your investing. I, th I think as we tie up here, I just, any advice you have for someone that's looking to get started investing at a distance? I mean, you're, you're across the world, you're in Europe, you know, investing still in the United States. How are you doing that and, and continually doing that successfully, Dave? And what advice would you share for someone that also wants to invest not local to where they're at? Yeah, I, I continue to invest um, primarily through syndications at this point, which is passive investing, um, which is not available to everyone, I understand. So um, that's something I do uh, because I uh, live far away and I think it's, it's nice to just have a company that I can, I can talk to. Um, I think turnkey is, is a great option where you, you are buying pre-vetted houses. Um, I personally, I think for me, I take comfort in data analysis. To me, that's like what makes me feel confident about my investing. And so I just look for good markets that I feel have long-term 
growth potential and then try and find good partners. I mean, it's really not all that complicated. It's pretty, pretty much comes down to that is find a good market, find a good partner, and then um, expect that you're going to invest for the long term. Don't expect quick returns. Don't expect to get rich quick. Expect to build wealth over time. Uh, that's how real estate works. And if you have good expectations, you're you're likely to succeed. Love yeah. it. Now, one of the things you've mentioned is um, you know home prices probably not going up nearly as quick. Um, rent prices, however, you know we're still seeing a lot of pressure there. Um, obviously, the last one to two years we've seen significantly higher than normal rent increases. As home prices slow down, rents are still trying to catch up. Do you see a longer tail on how much longer rents can go up faster than national average? Or do you th- think they're going to slow down um, kind of like home pricing? Or what do you see there? You know, I actually think by the end of the year, we'll see a, a, a situation where rent growth on it, like on a year over year basis is probably higher than home price growth. Um, that is because I think a lot of people, landlords are catching up from rent over the last couple of years. I didn't, I was very fortunate. I didn't have anyone who couldn't pay rent, but I just chose not to raise rent during the pandemic. I just thought it was in everyone's best interest to just uh, keep it at the same. That said, you know, I just raised rent for the first time on, on any of my properties because working from home, I pay the utilities on this property, for example, it's literally doubled. My taxes have almost doubled and the uh, insurance has almost doubled in that time. And so there, to, to maintain your, your profit and your business, um, you do need to raise rents. I don't think we're seeing people who are going like, to be aggressively raising rents, but I think you know, there are people who are in two or three year leases um, and people like myself who just chose not to, to raise rent during the pandemic that are going to keep to start raising rent a little bit right now. And that's going to be reflected in the overall numbers. But I think from a, like a macroeconomic standpoint, even though there is inflation, um, wage growth is not keeping up with inflation right now. And that uh, doesn't support long-term rent growth in my mind. I mean, it, it will, I don't think it's going to go down just for the record. I just think like these rates of like crazy, crazy rent growth for both like our societal benefit and just economically it needs to go down. And I think it will. All right. Well, excellent. Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining us. As I mentioned before, VP of data and analytics for bigger pockets, hosts of the podcast, the on the market. Um, I don't, I didn't see if that one has a specific website. I know you can find more information for them on bigger pockets, but are there any other websites or things you want to promote before we wrap it up? Uh, no, yeah, you can just Google on the market. It's on Spotify, Apple, we have our own YouTube channel as well. And if you ever want to interact with me, you can do that on Instagram. I am at the data deli. And that is where I am most active. <laughs> All right. At the data deli. Really appreciate you joining us here today. Uh, check us out at renttoretirement.com. You can see everything that we have to offer. You can see all of our previous episodes as well. Really appreciate you uh, listening to the show, but also appreciate a review on whatever podcast platform you use. Uh, If you give a listen to On The Market, make sure you give them a review as well. If you have any questions, reach out podcasts at renttoretirement.com. That's podcasts at renttoretirement.com. And we'll see you on the next episode. 
Thanks for listening to the Rent to Retirement Podcast, your number one resource for wealth building, real estate investing, and stress-free retirement strategies. Continue your real estate education and invest with us at renttoretirement.com. 